0: One of the great challenges of being a Christian in this present age is that people who do not follow our master, Jesus, think that we are a people who are self-righteous, that we think that we are the be-all and end-all of truth, and that we live hypocritical lives while we do what we want to do, we criticize everybody else who does what they want to do. That's kind of the caricature of Christians today. The challenge of the Christian is to believe in absolutes. That is, there's such a thing as right and wrong, but to communicate two other things too. First, those absolutes are not our personal opinions. They don't come from us. The absolutes come from Scripture as found in the Word of God. That's why East White Oak Bible Church has Bible as its middle name. We want to look not to ourselves for truth or for fulfillment, but to look to the Bible. So those absolutes don't come from us. And secondly, we want the world to know that we are just as guilty of violating those absolutes as everybody else is. And that's why we need rescuing that's why we need a savior. That's why Jesus came to come and die in our place, taking our punishment that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This morning, I invite you to look at the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. So, If you have a Bible or a phone, look up 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be going on an adventure this morning. We have been in this letter since last November, but we've looked at it in chunks, one piece after another. And today what we're going to do is look at it as a panorama, look at it as a whole book. And in the process of doing that, hopefully, we will be able to capture some truths that will be cemented in our minds and in our hearts. In order to do that, I want to begin with uh, a a description of the background and the audience of the letter. Uh, Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, and he stayed at Corinth for 18 months, which for Paul was a pretty lengthy amount of time of him staying in one place. Uh, it was then, after he left Corinth, that he ended up writing this letter from Ephesus about, depending on your chronology of the New Testament, about two and a half years to seven years later. Um, Ephesus is about 350 miles from Corinth as the crow flies across the Aegean Sea. Not sure too many crows fly across the Aegean, but 350 miles across. But Paul generally made this trip over land, which made it a trip of about 870 miles. And you know that I have a a map. Yes, I have a map. And so circled in red is Corinth and across the Aegean is Ephesus, and Paul is writing to the Corinthian church this letter, uh, front, and he's writing from Ephesus. And you can see across the Aegean, it's about 350 miles, but Paul generally made the trip overland, which meant going around the Aegean, where he went to places that are mentioned in the New Testament for Paul's visits, places like Troas and Neapolis and Thessalonica and Berea, um, Philippi, those are all in the northern part of our map there, uh, before coming down to the Peloponnese here, which is where Corinth is, situated on an isthmus, which is very interesting because it meant that Corinth became a very active place for trade. Now, you might want to ask, why did Paul write this letter? It's all one question you always want to ask in the bible especially in these letters is why was it written and the one of the there, I'll give 3 reasons the first one is that Paul actually had written a previous letter to the Corinthians that the Corinthians had somewhat misunderstood so our first Corinthians is actually, technically, if you want to talk about Paul's letters, is actually 2 Corinthians, okay? Um, if you look at chapter 5, verse 9, you get a hint of this, where Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. I mean, you rub shoulders with everybody who doesn't know Jesus. But the, he's saying, don't associate with people who are professing a faith in Christ but are living a sexually immoral life. Don't associate with them. So this previous letter apparently had misunderstood, been misunderstood, and so Paul now is writing this letter to kind of straighten things out. A second purpose is that there was a growing problem at this young church uh, with divisions. People weren't getting along with one another. You've heard me say the old saw uh, to live above with the saints i love oh that will be glory to live below with the saints i know well that's another story um, there were there were divisions in the in the church at at corinth and paul's wanting to address that there were also personality cults copping up people were identifying with little groups and factions and so forth so that's a second reason why paul wrote the letter and third the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul asking him several questions. And he answers those questions in this letter and he introduces his answer to those questions with the phrase, now concerning. That's a a kind of a code, if you will, that describes the answers to the questions that the Corinthians had asked. So they asked about marriage in chapter seven, verse one. They asked about food offered to idols in chapter eight, verse one. They asked about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, verse one. And they asked about church offerings in chapter 16, verse one. And so uh, in all of those, Paul gives his answer to those questions. So three purposes for writing the book. A previous letter had been misunderstood. Uh, There was a growing problem of divisions and personality cults in the church. And the Corinthians had asked some questions that Paul wanted to give some answers to. Now, let's think for a moment, not just about the background and the audience here, but let's think about the thesis of the letter. Really, the thesis is all about how to be spiritual in a corrupt world. How to be spiritual in a corrupt world. Now, As soon as you use the word spiritual, you're off on an adventure because there's a variety of definitions of the word spiritual, aren't there? Let me give you two. One is kind of a world's definition of spirituality and the second is a biblical definition of spirituality. First, the world's definition. The world's definition of spirituality is to be a fulfilled person in the way that that person defines fulfillment. That would be the world's definition of spirituality. So, for example, if a person defines fulfillment as being able to be a person who is at peace and spends time in meditating and yoga and those sorts of things, then they would identify themselves as a spiritual person. Some people identify their spirituality through their diet or through their hobbies or through their pursuits. Uh, some people will say that their uh, fulfillment is through their relationships, or through the money that they make. There's all kinds of ways in which that gets fleshed out, but the world's definition is to be a fulfilled person in the way that the person, him or herself, defines fulfillment. That is a spiritual person by the world's definition. The Bible's definition of spirituality is quite a bit different. Uh, Here it is in brief. Biblical spirituality is to be like the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That our spirituality is measured by our being like Jesus Christ. Now, those are two very different definitions. But that's why Christians spend a lot of time studying the Bible and particularly the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and his work at the cross and his resurrection from the dead because Christians want to be like our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is true spirituality by the Bible's definition. Now, let me make it a little more complicated than that even. There is such a thing as individual spirituality and corporate spirituality. By individual spirituality, I think we all know and understand what that means. It means how we personally are doing and becoming like our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And in fact, for many Christians, that's their only definition of spirituality. How am I doing in becoming like Jesus. Now, that's a a good thing, and the Bible talks a lot about that. In fact, 1 Corinthians talks a lot about individual spirituality. But there's another dimension to spirituality that all believers need to add in, and that is corporate spirituality. How is it that we are doing as a group, as a church? How are we becoming as a as a church more like our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So we will see in 1 Corinthians, for example, that Paul will say that individuals are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that as a result, there is a spirituality of the individual. But he will also say that you as a church are a temple of the Holy Spirit, corporately. And that the growth and maturity, and Christ-likeness of the church is also an important matter of spirituality. Now, what are some of the corruptions that hinder our spirituality? Well, they're some of the same things that hindered the people in Corinth. Uh, Money is a big hindrance at Corinth because it was the richest city in Greece. And as Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of things can spread out of our uh, selfishness and materialism that can creep up from money. Uh, Sexuality is also something that was an issue at Corinth. Uh, The rampant sexual immorality in the city made it easy for people to excuse their own lack of holiness. Here's what happens for Christians, it happens today and it happened at Corinth, is that people would look at somebody else and they go, well, I'm better than they are, so I guess I'm okay. The standard of spirituality for the Christian is never to compare yourself to someone else, The standard is, remember, how are we doing in our becoming more and more like our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ? And so what was happening at Corinth is something that is of easy temptation for us, too, is that we'll look at someone else, well, I'm doing okay because I'm I'm better than them. And you see, that leads us on a horrific journey, first of all, of judgmentalism of others, but also on a journey where we are not seeing our own relationship with God in a proper perspective. So um, this becomes an important hindrance to our spirituality. Um, And then uh, we might also add that Corinth was a host to the Isthmian games, which was second in importance in Greece to the Olympic games. And the theater and sports were a very common uh, part of Corinthian life. And while those things are not necessarily evil in themselves, they do present opportunities to put something ahead of one's devotion to Christ and could therefore hinder one's spirituality. So money, sexual temptation, entertainment, those are the issues at Corinth and I think we could probably agree that those are some of the uh, kinds of things that can get in the way of our own chasing after and becoming more like our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at these themes then. And they all, I've, I've, I've chosen the letter D uh, to try to help you implant in your mind this flow of the letter Uh, The first one is that there is division in the church, which does not advance spirituality. It does not advance spiritual growth. And that's kind of the theme from chapters one through four. Uh, There was a growing problem with divisions. Uh, Look at chapter one, uh, verse 10, for example. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, spirituality is the standard of following our Lord and Master Jesus that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Uh, What I mean is that each one of you says, and notice that there's this individual idea that's not thinking about corporate spirituality and each one is saying i follow paul i follow apollos i follow cephas and some super spiritual person says well i follow christ you know and uh, paul is saying that this division cannot be chapter 3 verse 1 i brothers could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in christ Chapter 4, verse 10, <clears throat> we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul's saying that in a sarcastic way. He's saying, you guys think you're something. You think that you're wise in Christ while you regard us as fools? Where You think that you're strong while we are weak? Again, this idea of comparison is a measure of spirituality. Paul's saying no. He's saying it sarcastically. So we get to 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Do you see his heart? His heart that Christ is formed in the people at Corinth. Chapter four, verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This is a spirituality that fits all times and all places. There was a growing problem with divisions and personality cults at the church at Corinth. There was a denial that these problems were hindering the church. Uh, Back in chapter 3, Paul uh, reminded them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The word you is plural there. He's talking about a corporate spirituality. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You see, you all, the church is God's dwelling place. And so for there to be divisions, is a demonstration of our corporate lack of spirituality. So the first problem is division in the church. The second problem is disorder. Disorder by church members. And that does not advance spiritual growth either. Here Paul addresses some specific concerns. Chapter 5 verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Uh, Sexual immorality of of a nature, it's not even true of the general city of Corinth. And there's a self-proclaimed satisfaction of the church in accepting such immorality. Look at verse two. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That where such things are tolerated, it infects the entire corporate spirituality of the body. Um, And then a second problem of disorder is in chapter 6, verse 1 believers are taking other believers to court when one of you has a grievance against another does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints you see when believers take other believers to court it is a demonstration of a lack of the spirituality of the individuals but also it's a hindrance to the spirituality of the whole body and then chapter six, verses 18 to 20, a failure to flee sexual immorality. Verse 18 of chapter six, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? This is an, about individual spirituality. You, singular, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. True spirituality is defined by becoming more like your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So disorder by church members does not advance spiritual growth, either corporately or individually. So we've got division and disorder, and now difficulties. Difficulties must be directly addressed in order to advance spiritual growth. And here, Paul lists a whole bunch of them through chapter 7 through chapter 14. Let's think about a couple of them. Chapter 7 is about marriage and sexuality. How do I live Christianly as a sexual being in this world? And Paul talked about the mutual authority of husband and wife, along with his own preference for singleness. He talks also about how people who are married should stay married, and particularly those who are married to unbelievers should stay married to that unbeliever. If the unbelieving person wants to be married to them, you should stay married. So not only are there uh, these difficulties in marriage and family, but there's difficulties in personal liberty, one of the things that we Christians are prone to do is to ask when we're thinking about spirituality is to ask this question, well how close can I get to the line of sin without falling off? And may I suggest to you that that's the wrong question? That the question we ought to be asking is how can I be more and more like my Lord and Master Jesus Christ rather than asking the question how close to the edge can I get? And What was happening in Corinth was that people were asking the question, how close to the edge can I get? So chapter eight is about food that's offered to idols. Chapter nine is about the liberty of Christian servants. Uh, At the end of chapter nine, you have the idea of the privilege of pursuing God rather than comfort. And he uses a couple of illustrations from the world of athletics. He says, do you not know, verse 29 of chapter nine, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Don't think how close to the edge of sin can I get? Run to obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, illustration from athletics number one, I do not box as one beating the air, illustration from athletics number two, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should be disqualified. And then he talks in chapter 10 about the joy of winning the battle against temptation, So rather than dwelling on our temptation and thinking how close to the edge can we get without falling off, we should think about the joy of victory over temptation. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't think in your spirituality, wanting to be like Christ, that you can just, okay, I compare pretty well to everybody else, so I think I'm doing okay you think you stand that's when you're going to fall and then verse 13 such a valuable verse no temptation has seized you except what's common to man and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it verse 14 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry things that take the place. Of Christ the joy of winning the battle against temptation and then the focus all together in verse 31 of chapter 10 is summarized so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do don't ask the question how close to the edge of sin do I get but rather do all to the glory of of God. Do it all for his glory. The focus is on the glory of God. So there were difficulties at Corinth in personal liberty. And then one last difficulty I'll mention here is what I would term generally worship wars. That is, how can we rid ourselves of personal preference and follow God together in our corporate spirituality so paul talks for example in chapter 11 about to directly to the women of corinth not to be contentious in worship he talks at the end of chapter 11 for the lord's table communion to be kept in honor He talks about the use of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and he says those spiritual gifts are given individually but they are intended for the common good. They're intended for corporate spirituality. Look at chapter 12 verse 4. There are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7. To each is given, that's individuals, is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that is a gift of the Spirit. But notice it's for the common good, it's for corporate spirituality, the building up of the body, that the body of Christ, the church, might be like her Lord and Master Jesus. Paul wants everyone to see their value to the body of Christ. Look at chapter 12, verse 24. Uh, Beginning at the second half of that verse, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you see how the individual's spirituality and the church's spirituality are interconnected, seamlessly so, without any way that you could divide them. And so that's why in chapter 13, Paul says, now I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way over advancing one person's gifts over another is love. (laughs) Paul says, you know, if If I had the gift of speaking in tongues of men and of angels, if I had prophetic powers, if I understood all mysteries and all knowledge, if I had all faith that I could remove mountains, if if I gave away all I had, if I delivered up my body to be burned, you know, all those amazing gifts, but I didn't have love, I gain nothing. So there needs to be a steadfast, and the word love simply means commitment, a steadfast commitment to one another in the body of Christ. And then in chapter 14, he talks specifically about the gifts of prophecy and tongues, that they are intended to advance the peace of the church rather than to add to the confusion of the church. Look at verse 26. At the end of it, let all things be done for Building up. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So these difficulties must be directly addressed in order to advance spiritual growth, both of individuals and of the church as a whole. Difficulties in marriage and family, difficulties in personal liberty, and in getting rid of our personal preferences in worship and following God together. Well, that's the difficulties, and we've actually looked also at uh, the disorder, and we've looked at the division. Now let's look at the next D word, we're at chapter 15 now, doctrine. Doctrine, especially about Jesus' death and resurrection, is essential to spiritual growth think about it if spirituality is becoming more like our lord and master jesus christ we should know who he is and what he has done and we ought to rehearse that to ourselves over and over and over it's not that we ever get tired of this beautiful good news that jesus came into this world And he lived a perfect life because he was truly God and truly human. He died on the cross in our place. He bore the punishment that we deserved. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to prove who he was and to prepare a place for us to go to be with him when God's kingdom comes. Now, that truth is essential spiritual growth. So look at chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We also have to acknowledge here in chapter 15 that the resurrection of the body is an essential christian doctrine it's not just the immortality of the soul that is that there's some part immaterial part of us that will live forever but that god is going to raise us up with resurrection bodies that that's an essential christian doctrine look at verse 16 if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The rule of Christ is our blessing and our hope. Look at verse 22. Each in his own, uh, excuse me, verse 22. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As a result of Adam's sin, death comes to us all. But in Christ, everyone who's in Christ will be made alive at the resurrection, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. The rule of Christ is our blessing and our hope. That's why we define spirituality as becoming like our Master and Lord Jesus. The nature of the resurrection body is glorious. Chapter 15, verse 42 So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Uh, Verse 48, as the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, referring to Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a glory that will be. The ultimate victory of the Christian is because of the victory of Jesus over the grave. Look at verse 53. This perishable body of ours must put on the imperishable. This mortal body of ours must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our spirituality isn't measured by measuring ourselves up against anybody else. It is only Christ. He's all that matters. The spirituality of this church is measured not by our comparing ourselves with others. It is only Christ. Are we following our Master and our Lord? And so, this coming victory that Christ promises gives us practical strength for each day's trials. Some of you have walked in here and you've got trials. I mean, it almost feels physical on you, the trials you're encountering. And of course, because it's church, you walk in, how are you? Fine. You have the nice smile, but you're carrying a burden. Did you know that Christ's victory is what enables you to have victory in the midst of your trials right here and now? That's why Paul concludes this chapter 15 with these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain it's not empty it has value and purpose and worth so there's this doctrine especially about Jesus death and resurrection is essential to our spirituality we must rehearse this we must tell one another the story of Jesus and his love for us we must preach it to ourselves daily. We must tell it to one another. We must glory in the ultimate victory of Christ over all the enemies when he will hand over His kingdom to, the kingdom to God the Father, as it says there in 1 Corinthians 15. So what we have in these tracing of themes is division, disorder, difficulties, doctrine, and now we come to chapter 16, daily life daily life can be lived in a way to advance spiritual growth. So in chapter 16, we have first the value of giving to the Lord's work, of the church having a spirituality, a corporate spirituality, that's found in proper accounting of money given to it, of there being planning both as individuals and as a a group for God's work and organizing God's work. All of that is in chapters one, or verses one to 11 of chapter 16. Then Paul talks about the value of personal discipline. In verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. The value of personal discipline in our lives. And then the value of refreshing partnerships. He talks about the household of Stephanus and three guys, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. Verse 18, it says, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. There's a value in refreshing uh, partnerships in both individual and corporate spirituality. And then finally, Paul concludes with the value of loving one another. Being devoted to one another. Look at verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Have affection for one another. Verse uh, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. The value of loving one another. So... In these themes, we have the division in the church, not advancing spiritual growth. Disorder by church members does not advance spirituality. Difficulties need to be addressed directly in order for spirituality to advance. And doctrine, especially about Jesus' death and resurrection, is essential to our spirituality. And daily life, then, can be lived out in a way to advance our spirituality, both individually and corporately. Now, uh, I have mentioned that the church at Corinth was young. At the most, it was maybe three to seven, eight years old at the time that this letter was written. And there's an interesting difference between young churches and established churches, churches of long standing. Now, the essential differences aren't that great. Uh, the fact is that whether you've been a church for decades or you've just started out as a church, there's the problems of the world and the flesh and the devil that creep in, right? That's true everywhere. And there are people who pretend to be believers in Jesus that show that they don't truly possess real faith in Jesus Christ. But let me just address for a moment the danger of an established church that's different from the church at Corinth. The danger of an established church, and I would call East White Oak one of them, the danger of an established church is to rest on her past successes. That is to feel like the old ways are always better, to be dead to a fresh and new work of the Holy Spirit that quite frequently characterizes new churches. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a new church or if you have ever talked to someone who is going to a new church, but quite often you will hear something like this. Oh, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. Oh, God just shows up there, you know, and they're all excited. Now, I don't want to throw cold water on that because there's a truth there, but let's be aware that that's something that happens In new churches, that we who are in an established church should also, what? Pray for and long for and be open to and ready for. This is why, uh, now that we are concluded with 1 Corinthians, that for 10 weeks we're going to be in the book of Ezra because we're gonna look at the hope and challenge of revival. It's my belief that the only hope for our culture is for there to be a heaven sent revival that transforms the churches in our nation to be more like Jesus and that would generate something of a movement that creates millions of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's not something we can control, that's something God does, right? But we can prepare our hearts for a revival of his work in our lives and in the life of our church. And that's where Ezra is going to be so helpful to us. You know, uh, let me just share with you some of the things that are going to be happening. We're going to have Every other week, one week we will have communion, the next week we'll have an extended prayer time in our worship service, where it won't just be me or someone else standing to pray and we all join prayer that way, but we'll be meeting in smaller groups in our, in our worship services, praying together. So every other week, one week the Lord's table, one week doing that kind of prayer. Every Wednesday night of this series, Pastor Jeff will be leading our Wednesday night prayer meetings on the theme of revival. He's made that a life study, and I would encourage you to come to those prayer times. We'll have small group book studies of Ezra, and we'll be starting some new small groups. And if you're not a part of small groups here at East White Oak, now's the time to join in. We'll have some things, especially when we get to chapter 7, about putting it into practice and being able to train other people. The time for study is is great, but it can't just stop with that. We have to move on to passing truth on to others. After each Sunday, we'll have a post-sermon podcast that we will put up on our uh, social media where we will be talking about issues that flow from the message each Sunday. We'll also have Pastor Jeff do a short, brief uh, video summary of each Wednesday's theme. We'll have a way for us to connect with one another by having a church work day, much like in Ezra, where they prepared for God's temple. We'll have a Friday night watch night prayer time that will be the first Friday after we are in our refreshed worship center for personal and corporate prayer over revival. We hope to publish an Ezra resource notebook that will contain uh, opportunities for you to write sermon notes, your prayers through the fall, and your reflections on this journey to revival. Will you pray that God might be pleased to meet us as a church in this very challenging hour? We need the Lord, friends. We need to become more like our Lord and Master Jesus. Please pray with me. God, we're humbled by your holiness. We don't compare ourselves to others. We in ourselves have no authority. Our authority only comes from Scripture. So Lord, please help us to grow, to be more like our Lord and Master Jesus, both individually and as a church. Help us to invite the Holy Spirit here in this place over these next few months. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here in this room who's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would see his love right now. That they would say, Lord, forgive me of my sins by what you did at the cross grant to me your eternal life i believe you died and rose again and i want to join you in your eternal kingdom now lord we pray that this next season of our church would be one in which we seek your face that we humble ourselves before you and that we walk with a joy that's unlike anything we've ever experienced because We're meeting you. In Jesus' name, amen.